Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. He is out. Look at, look at this. Flint is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli Pass Ball Show right here. Check it out. JohnPielli.com. The whole thing. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We keep the program interactive. A lot of different things we want to get into today. Of course, opening day just going by. Every team by this point has started the season. We're just about a full week into the season. And we can talk about all what we expect out of every team, whether it's your favorite team, whether it's a team you think are the favorites, whether there's a sleeper team in there that you think might have a chance to do a little better than we expect. And obviously, I'm going to get into a lot of different things today. I got some great interviews coming up, uh, one with Tim McCarver. And Tim McCarver, of course, the longtime former Major League catcher, been in the broadcast booth for over 35 years. He's going to join the St. Louis Cardinals, doing about 30 games on TV for them this year. We're also going to get a chance to speak with former Major League infielder Desi Relliford. And this was part of my interview series that I took while I was down in Florida. We actually recorded this at ja- in Jacksonville, where, over near where Desi lives and down in Florida. And Desi, of course, was a guest on the past ball show probably about a year and a half ago. And, you know, we get to touch on a couple other things going on in baseball and his career and some of his experiences. In the second hour, uh, we'll be joined by former Major League pitcher Milt Wilcox, who, of course, came up with the Reds in the early part of the 70s, had some very good years for the Tigers in the late 70s and the early 80s, and Larry Jaster. Larry Jaster, a left-hand pitcher, was part of those same Cardinal teams that Tim McCarver was part of when the Cardinals were winning World Series and pitched for the Cardinals in 67 and 68. Of course, won the World Series with them in 67, was part of the 68 team that ended up falling a little short to the Tigers in the Fall Classic. But Larry also had a chance to pitch with the Montreal Expos. He was on the inaugural Expos team in 1969. He actually pitched in the history of Major League Baseball in Canada. And, of course, you know about the Montreal Royals that existed before that, but the first Major League Baseball pitch thrown in Montreal for the Montreal Expos was thrown by Larry Jaster, who also gave up one of the longest home runs you've ever seen and probably the longest home run in the history of Shea Stadium. Uh, Tommy Agee's blast that he hit into the left field upper deck, that real small part of Shea Stadium that actually spans into fair territory, was thrown by Larry Jaster. And, of course, for years that seat was marked with the number 20 of Tommy Agee and, of course, the historic nature of the home run that he hit. 
So hopefully you guys enjoy this program. A lot of stuff to get into in the meantime. I'm going to talk a little bit about Lugies, the left-hand one-only out specialist, the, the way the game has turned. And, of course, you know the change over the last 20, 20-plus 20 years. The, the lefties that only go in there to get one batter out. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's not necessarily fair to every pitcher that happens to throw from the left side is expected to do that job. I'm also going to do my team previews the abridged version and not break down every team. But what I'm going to do is talk about where I expect teams to be record-wise and my predictions for the playoffs and the postseason and, of course, my World Series champion. But I'm going to start out the program by talking about something that happened on opening day that was kind of sad. And, you know, every team has their opening day ceremony, for, especially when you're starting at home. And next week you're going to see teams that didn't have their home opener last week, didn't have their home opener this week. We'll kind of start the season in the same fashion. But what happened over in Anaheim was probably one you don't really want to see in baseball gruesome injury and it happened on the ceremonial first pitch the angels honoring two players who had very big impacts with the organization vladimir guerrero throwing out the first pitch to don baylor and don baylor of course is the hitting coach for the angels but of course had some very good seasons with the angels including his mvp season of 1979 and of course guerrero throws out the first pitch and Baylor breaks his leg just trying to catch the pitch and it shows how subtle some of these things can be and how serious something could happen on just a little movement of a, a leg is something in the wrong direction but Don Baylor seriously hurt he breaks his leg he ends up having to have surgery ends up having to get helped off the field and you know a sad moment and hopefully everything goes well with Don Baylor of course now the hitting coach of the Angels he's uh, been a major league manager he's been a major league hitting coach for several different teams but here, here's a guy that actually had a pretty good career and if you want to take a couple minutes just to go back and look at Don Baylor as far as what he's done throughout his career he, he came up with the Orioles and made his debut in 1970 and he was a young and up-and-coming bopper the Orioles and of course the Orioles were having some success at that time in the early part of the 70s and he kind of had his breakout season in 1975 he had 25 home runs drove in 76 runs he started to kind of emerge himself as being one of the young power hitters in that lineup playing left field and ends up being traded after the 1975 season to the Oakland Athletics in a historic trade which sent Reggie Jackson over to the Orioles where he would play for that one year and of course he ends up going to the Yankees after that in 77 but Don Baylor uh, just has the one year just like Jackson did with the Orioles in 76 after the 76 season he ends up going on to the California Angels and this is where he made his mark if you look at Don Baylor's career as a power hitter, his best years were enjoyed with the California Angels. In 1977, he, he kind of broke out a little bit, uh, hit 25 home runs, 34 home runs in 1978. In 1979, he plays in all 162 games, leads the league with 120 runs scored and 139 RBIs, hits 296 with 36 home runs, and wins the AL MVP, taking the Angels to the playoffs for the first time in their young history. And, you know, he ends up having some pretty good years. Uh, you know, before going over to the Yankees in 83, uh, had 30 home run season for the Red Sox in 1986, the year they won the AL pennant, and finishes off his career in 86 with the Red Sox. 87 gets traded to the Minnesota Twins while they go out there and win a World Series, and then is part of the 1988 Oakland Athletics team as a designated hitter that makes the World Series, losing to the Dodgers in a tough series there. Of course, we know about Kirk Gibson, the whole thing, but he's a guy who finished his career in the major leagues with 
three straight teams that played in the World Series. How many players can you say have, have accomplished that? You know, 86 with the Red Sox, 87 with the Twins, 88 with the Oakland Athletics. The last three years of his major league career spent with teams that were in the World Series, and they were different teams. So that's probably something you're never going to see happen again. And Don Baylor, of course, gets himself involved with the game as the manager. He's the first manager of the Colorado Rockies in 1993, manages the team for six seasons, uh, up into, through the 1998 season, joins the Cubs in 2000 for 2000 to 2002. And he hasn't gotten back in, in a major league managerial fold. And, I, you know, he, the guy's up there. He's about 64 years old right now. I don't think he's going to manage in the major leagues again. But, you know, here's a guy that's been a baseball lifer. You know about his experience as a hitting coach. He's been a hitting coach for several different teams, including the Mets, Rockies once again, and then Diamond Board in a coaching staff for the Angels in 2014 but you know one thing you a lot of people don't realize about Don Baylor Don Baylor is a guy who is beaten cancer uh, he was diagnosed with multiple melanoma a former cancer that attacks plasma in the bone marrow when he became a Mets coach in 2003 the condition is usually fatal within five years of diagnosis however he managed to beat the disease and became a major fundraiser for research against the condition particularly in trying to put together a database of patients and order to help doctors and researchers track trends and share information. Now, he's working with former pitching coach Mel Stylemeyer Sr., who was also a multiple melanoma survivor on fundraising efforts with the two mindful of fellow coach Vern Rule, a former pitching coach who had died of the disease at 55 a couple years earlier. So here's another thing that Don Baylor's got to battle himself through. And, you know, there's no question he's going to get back on the field. He's going to be assuming his responsibility as a, hit, as a hitting coach. He's been pretty well known as far as being a good hitting coach. Teams want him. I mean, he's put the Arizona Diamondbacks the last couple seasons. He's done a good job with them. He returned to the Rockies as a hitting coach after he was the manager with them. And, you know, here's the guy. Listen, let's be honest. The guy knows how to hit. Uh, he's always hit for power. He knows how to work the counts. He's he, he was one of the better power hitters of his generation. It didn't get enough credit or enough notoriety for what he did. And, of course, you know, was in the World Series three times. And, of course, the MVP at a 1979 season. And what, what made the connection between Baylor and for Vladimir Guerrero is they're the only two Angels who have won MVPs. And let's be honest, if you're an Angels fan or if you're a baseball, maybe a younger baseball fan, you're probably a little pissed off over the last couple seasons when Mike Trout has finished second in the American League in the Most Valuable Player Award to Miguel Cabrera. A lot of people feel that Trout is has been the MVP over the last couple seasons, but you know Cabrera, I think rightly so, has won the award both seasons with the Triple Crown in 2012 and, of course, the season he had in 2013. But you know, in the history of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, whether it's that or the California Angels or the Los Angeles Angels or the Anaheim Angels. The only two MVPs that they've ever had were on that field participating in that ceremonial first pitch to start the 2014 season, and that's Vladimir Guerrero and Don Baylor. And of course, we wish Don Baylor the best. Hopefully, he gets back on the field where he belongs and he could continue to do the job he does as a hitting coach. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. What I'm going to do is I'm going to jump in to an interview that I recorded this past week with longtime Major League catcher and longer-time Major League broadcaster Tim McCarver. And, of course, you follow Tim McCarver if you've watched the World Series over the last several years. And Tim McCarver's first World Series he ever covered was in place of Howard Cosell in 1985. And a lot of people don't know that, but Howard Cosell had a little bit of outs with ABC after being associated with them for so many years. But he wrote a tell-all book and kind of 
bashed the management and his treatment over the last several years and was immediately taken off of any broadcast team that he was on, which at the time it included the World Series. And, and Tim McCarver, of course, took over for him in 19... Been doing World Series on and off ever since, and obviously the last several seasons with Joe Buck on the Fox Network. And you know, of course, me is a guy that I remember doing uh, games for the New York Mets, and he was, of course, the Mets broadcaster from 1983 through 1998. And of course, I remember growing up, he was one of the prime voices that I, I would see on Channel Nine for all those years. Uh, of course, teamed up with Ralph Kiner, and of course, some of the other guys who who did who did Mets games in that time, and. Of course, Ralph passed away this past year, a couple months ago, and you know he gets into a little bit, talks a little bit about Ralph Kiner, but also talks about some of the some of the players that he got a chance to play with: Stan Musial, Bob Gibson, Steve Carlton, and a little bit about how he got into baseball and how he first started out as a as a little kid learning how to play the games. So here's the spot that I recorded this past week with, of course, longtime Major League broadcaster and longtime Cardinals and Phillies catcher Tim McCarver. Good afternoon. This is John Fielli. I'm happy to be joined by a longtime broadcaster and, of course, longtime major league catcher Tim McCarver. Tim, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, you're welcome, John. How are things? Everything's going very well, definitely. Um, the first thing I want to get into, you, you spent a, you know, a lot of years in baseball, both you know, as a player and, of course, afterwards as a broadcaster. Uh, what, what got you into baseball as a kid? Well, I'm still in baseball, John. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't gone anywhere. In fact, I will be doing uh, Cardinal games this year. I'm doing a, a package of 30 Cardinal games on the uh, uh, on the Fox uh, Sports Midwest Network uh, for the Cardinals. So I, I have not disappeared from the scene. What got me into baseball originally? Well, I started playing. I, it was not unlike. Uh, uh, any other uh, youngster growing up in, in the hinterland in, uh, in this country back in the 50s, I, I started playing ball when I was eight years old and um, uh, uh, played Legion ball, played uh, baseball in high school and signed a contract when I was 17 years old with the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, uh, that was in 1959, and here it is, 55 years later. I'm, I'm still in it. Wow, that's awesome! I tell you, you know, when you're what I've, uh, what I've done, what I've experienced. Yeah, when you were when you were younger, was was baseball what you envisioned yourself doing years from now, or was it was it? Did you play other sports? Yes, I, I played football. I played everything: football, basketball, ran track. Uh, loved football. That was my number one sport and uh, received scholarships to both Notre Dame and the University of Tennessee, but, uh, but elected to sign a bonus contract. I mean, after all, in those days, you know, fifty or $70,000 uh, to sign a baseball contract was a lot of money back in the late 50s. And, uh, and so I elected to do that and get my schooling during the, uh, during the off-season, which I, I did. I finished three years of college, but, uh, but never got my degree. Yeah. Now, when when you were when when you were younger, did you have a favorite team when you were growing up? Well, I, I was a fan of the game. Obviously, growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, uh, that was Cardinal country. It's only 290 miles south of of St. Louis, so uh, St. Louis was my first love. It was the first uh, the first major league team that, uh, that where I saw a game. I saw my first game as a ten year old. And uh, never forgot it. Have, still have a eight by ten photo of Eddie Stanky in my in my little league team 
So, yeah, I was, I was pretty much a Cardinal fan, but more than anything else, I was a fan of the game and continue to be a fan of the game. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating game, and the more you know about it, uh, the more uh, entranced you are with, uh, uh, with the game. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Tim McCarver. So it must have been a little bit of an added bonus to not only, you know, get a chance to play in the major leagues at such a young age, but to, to do it with a team that you, you know, you, you kind of maybe envisioned yourself playing for as a, you know, as a kid. No, I didn't envision myself playing for the Cardinals, but, I, you know, once they offered me a contract, and obviously I became at age 17 a professional baseball player. So uh, from then on, I, I was... Uh, I was very competitive, and uh, and and uh, decided that uh, this is what it, uh, what I was going to do for a living. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if it was an added bonus playing for the Cardinals. I mean, I almost signed with the New York Yankees. Bill Dickey was the scout in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is only about 125 miles from Memphis, and. Um, and I was very interested in, in signing with the Yankees too, but as as fate would have it, the Cardinals offered the most the most money as a bonus, and that's why I signed with St. Louis. Yeah, one guy you got a chance to play with early on in your career was Sam Usual. What 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 is it that you be able to tell firsthand of having a chance to play with Sam Usual, and what was your best memories of Sam? There, there, is, there is nothing I can say that hasn't been said before about uh, about number six. Um, my first full year in the major leagues in 1963 was his last full year. Uh, I was age 21, he was age 43, and um, and he was uh, an extraordinary human being, not just a baseball player. As a baseball player, is probably the greatest low ball hitter in the history of the game. I don't know how anybody could handle a ball even out of the strike zone, down around the, from the ankles to the knees, any better than Musial. Uh, but more than that, uh, as uh, has been stated time and time again since his passing uh, last year, uh, uh, it, it was the type of human being he was. It was, the, it was what he represented. He represented class. Uh, uh, he, he was just one of the nicest people uh, off the field that, that you could imagine. I mean, he was an extraordinary human being in, in, in many, many ways. Uh, uh, naturally, he was a, a, a seven-time uh, winner of the, the batting title in the National League. He played with one team his whole career. Uh, but more than anything else, it was the way he handled himself off the field. He just embodied class. And, uh, and as an example of that, uh, he became a general manager of the Cardinals one year in 1967, and we won the world championship against the Red Sox. So anything Stan touched, it turned to gold. And uh, it, it was that way from his early childhood to, uh, to even the businesses uh, in which he was involved uh, throughout, his, uh, throughout his life. He, he was an extraordinary human being. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Tim McCarver. And, of course, you, you know, throughout your career with St. Louis, you get to win a couple World Series championships. Tell us a little bit about your, your first experience in the World Series in 1964, playing against the Yankees. Of course, the Yankees, you know, ha have that history. They had a lot of success at that point, though the Cardinals weren't bad themselves. But, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience playing in the 1964 World Series, which is your first experience there. 
pitched to you all those years. Did you find it difficult at all for his demeanor, the way he carried himself, or was it just a situation where you just had that connection with him as far as knowing what he wanted to throw and you know the the best the best situation to throw a pitch? Tell us a little bit about what, what you saw firsthand from Steve, because obviously he was a left-hand pitcher, had a ton of success in his career, ends up making a Hall of Fame. Uh, what, what, what would you say about your experience getting a chance to catch Steve Carlton, and what it, what, did, did you see him being as successful as he was when you first started catching him in St. Louis? Uh, 
Not until he came up with the slider. I mean, when he first broke in uh, back in 1966, uh, he had a good fastball and a good curveball, but he didn't have a pitch that was going to make him famous. And he learned that pitch from Bob Gibson. Uh, Bob, uh, after the 1968 season, we lost to the Detroit Tigers in the World Series, and we went to Japan afterwards. And on the trip over there, uh, Bob Gibson taught Steve Carlton the slider. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny how things, how, how things start with the germ of an idea. And that's exactly what happened uh, with, uh, uh, with Bob and Steve. All Bob had to do was plant the seed, and Steve took it from there and ended up having one of the great sliders in the history of the game. And won 329 games. Not too shabby. No, not at all. And, you know, of course, after your playing career, you end up uh, getting involved in broadcasting. You've been a broadcaster for many years. Like, you just said you're going to do some Cardinal games about 30 this year for, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, was it on TV you're going to do the, game, the games for Cardinals? Of course, yes. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a Mets fan. I've, I've grown up my whole life following the team, so I can't talk to you and not ask you a Ralph Conner question. You know, Ralph, of course, is, you know, what, what he did both as a player and as a broadcaster after, and the man he was. Um, what, what, would, what would be your best description of, of Ralph Kiner to you? Uh, I think Vince Scully has the, has the best description of, uh, of Ralph. Uh, loud, bad, quiet voice. And, and that's about the way I could, I don't think anybody described Ralph uh, any better than that. Um, uh, he was uh, a gentleman in every respect. In fact, uh, you know, we talked about Stan Musial earlier. Stan Musial and Ralph Kiner were very close friends, and they were similar in many, many ways. They were great hitters. Uh, Ralph, of course, a power hitter. Stan, not as much of a power hitter as Kiner, uh, but uh, both very genteel men uh, off the field and away from uh, away from their work. Uh, but I think it's an interesting comparison. Uh, here we lose them uh, within a year, and and Ralph Kiner uh, and Stan Musial very, very similar as far as the way they carry themselves. Both classy, classy gentlemen. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Tim, I really want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck to your continued success. Okay, John. Thank you. Great to catch up there with Tim McCarver. And, of course, he's no longer going to be doing the World Series and the games with Joe Buck on Fox, but he's working for the Fox Network over in St. Louis where he's going to be calling about 30 games uh, on TV for the St. Louis Cardinals. His broadcasting career will continue well over 30 years. He's about in the 35th year right now. So the guy's secondary career certainly worked out as good, if not better, than his, than his catching career, which, let's be honest, I mean, it, that, that, that wasn't too shabby either. A guy that got a chance to catch over 20 seasons in the major leagues and got a chance to play in four different decades. One of 29 players in the history of Major League Baseball to play in four different decades. He made his Major League debut at the age of 17 in 1959 and, of course, played in 1980 with the Philadelphia Phillies, a team that ended up winning the World Series that year, but he had already gotten into his career in broadcasting and, you know, it was kind of, a, you know, got a chance to play in a couple of games just to play in that fourth different decade, but not too many players got a chance to play in that many different decades and of course was a very good catcher I had a chance to catch a couple Hall of Famers and Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton and of course you you heard him go over that so you know great catching up with Tim but right here on the past ball show we're going to take a little bit of a break be back with a lot more stuff going on back after this 
Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR. Of course, don't forget to check out my website, johnpielli.com. we got Bases Empty blog, everything that I write about, in addition to every interview I've recorded. Now, a couple of the interviews I haven't played on my show yet because I'm a little bit ahead, which is good, but I just recently recorded my 200th interview with a either current or former Major League player, and everything up on the site is easily accessible. You click on a name, and the interview comes right up. You just hit the play button, so hopefully you guys get a chance if you haven't to check out johnpielli.com. In addition to all the shows that I've recorded, I've got over 100, well over 100 shows that I've done with uh, you know, special guests and, of course, the interviews that I've done. So hopefully you guys get a chance to check that out. But, uh, you know, I mentioned a couple shows ago and last show that I was down in Florida for the better part of a week. And during that time, I got a chance to meet with a lot of different players, either uh, within their house around where they live or at the, you know, spring training complexes and had a chance that week to go over to Florida. I had a chance to meet up with former Major League infielder Desi Relaford. And, of course, Desi was a guest on the past ball show about a year and a half ago. So if you go on my johnpla.com website, you can see not only the interview that I recorded down in Florida, but the one that I recorded about a year and a half ago with Desi. And, you know, Desi, of course, played with the Philadelphia Phillies for several seasons. And, you know, originally came up with the Seattle Mariners organization, but played for some other teams, including the the Rockies and the Mets later on in his career. And, uh, you know, it's great to, you know, be able to sit down and 
person with him. And Desi, a guy that you know looks like he could still play. I mean, he, you know, he's a, he's a couple years removed from the game. Is in his 40s right now. But you know, a picture taken of me and him, I look like the older guy. And you know, Desi keeps himself up in great shape. And of course, is working on some stuff uh, after his playing career is over. So hopefully, you guys enjoy this spot with former Philadelphia Phillies and New York Mets infielder Desi Relaford. This is John Pielli. I'm over here with uh, former Major League infielder Desi Relaford. Well, I appreciate you having a couple minutes, man. No problem. Hey, first of all, man, uh, you know anything you're working on now? Do you like the, the listeners to hear about? Sure, man. I uh, you know a couple of things going on. Uh, one being, you know, I'm a consultant with Diversity, which is an energy brokerage firm. So uh, basically, you know, I'm out helping helping businesses save money on their on their energy bills okay. uh, and um, and uh, you know, that's one of my gigs and the other thing that I do is and it's actually funny that uh, the Northeast I'm the Northeast director for uh, for a company called athletes for college okay. and uh, what we do is we uh, we, we help high school athletes uh, obtain college scholarships. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool. So where, where is that up at? That's well, it's based out of California. Okay. You know, but uh, my region is from Maryland up to Maine. Okay. So the whole like the the northeast, the northeast up there is my region. That's cool. Was that something you ever thought about when you played, or was it something you just kind of got into after you were done playing? Yeah, that's just something. You know, the company approached me. You know, it's about a year ago now. Um, to be involved, they let me know what they were doing. I checked them out, and I liked basically I liked what they're doing. You know, they're literally helping kids who would in you know, no other way, uh, you know, have an opportunity to go to school. And we're getting kids, you know, a lot of different looks and getting them scholarships. Now, we'll see a John Pialy here with Desi Relaford, and of course, you know, talking about the Northeast a little bit. You know, unfortunately, we're playing for the New York Mets at the time of 9/11. Um, you're first memory in regards to that, obviously such a terrible occurrence in, in the country, and I think most of us can kind of go back and think about where we were at that moment. What, what, what is, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about it? Um, uh, well, the first thing, well, the first uh, thing that sticks out is when we came back, because we weren't actually in New York at the time. Yeah, you're on the road. We were on the road, we were in Pittsburgh. Um, like out by where that other plane landed. Kind yes. Of. So um, we got a couple of days later. We got on the buses and, and drove back. And I remember driving into the city, uh, coming in over from Newark, or you know, on the Jersey side, and you could see the city. Just you know, it had you know, you could see where the Ground Zero was, and there was just this haze over the city, and it's just. You know, the smell was, you know, it was just different. Yeah, it was a hard then, look. Yeah, and, and then, you know, as we got to the city and the days after, I just remember just nobody being on the streets. Like, New York City and, like, nobody without. Like, it was crazy. It just looked, you know, it looked like a little ghost town, like a movie set. You know, like, nobody without in New York, which was just the oddest and weirdest feeling. Very right, gloomy. Yeah, super gloomy. And one thing that the you know the Mets as an organization were known for was a lot of the relief efforts, you know, collecting supplies up at the stadium and stuff like that. What 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 do you remember from that? Yeah, that was that was really cool. Um, I mean, even though you know it was a little bit that we could do, um, 
it was it was cool for us to you know just help whoever you know Absolutely. being able to, to you know first of all collect this stuff and then to you know give it out to people as they needed it um, like I said it wasn't a whole lot to do but it was you know just a thought you know and us getting out there and being involved some kind of way yeah absolutely yeah. You know, you're thinking in your mind is anything you could do yeah. might not seem like much but hey you're, right. you're, you're, you're laying your hands out yeah there. we're doing something you know and um, which which was pretty cool you know just being a part of it and, and being able to help and um, you know in the actual game you know being able to go out and and play and give people a you know a few hours to hang you know just kind of take their mind off. The game that stands out is the first game back in New York. It was the first New York sporting event since 9-11, September 21st, 2001. Obviously, they have the ceremonies beforehand. The game gets replayed on TV millions and millions of times, which is it's good. Right. But that whole environment is kind of surreal. It's something that you, it's crazy. You, you probably something you've never experienced before and just kind of, kind of didn't really know what to do at that moment, just being there. Just, I mean, I was just there, just trying to... Like you said, it was surreal. I mean, Liza and Nelly singing the national anthem. And, I mean, it was just, I mean, the stadium packing, it was just a different energy. It was, uh, I don't know. It, it felt like, it felt like everybody was pulling for us. You know what I'm saying? Like, even like, I mean, not that the other team was trying to lose, but I don't think they were mad that they lost, you know? And it was just, it was one of those things where if New York won, everybody won. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one thing that stands out is they actually have quoted after the game, both Chipper Jones and Bobby Cox both said that that was maybe the only game they ever played that they weren't, you know, picked off or that, that, it, that it, it was kind of okay to lose just with the environment, exactly. the way it was set up, kind of the drama and what it, what it kind of brought back life to New York. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, I mean, that game was, it was a win for the country for as opposed sure. to just an individual team game. Exactly. All right, Desi, one more quick question, man. Uh, you know, you have you, you had a chance to play for multiple organizations. You know, you had a good, you know, had a minor league career. Like, you know, we, we talked off air about five years or so in the minors. Is there one particular moment that stands out to you that you say this was this was something I, I'll never forget, either on the field or off the field or in a clubhouse or something like that? Yeah, I was doing a piss. <laughs> my, my big league inning, you know, so that, that that stands out. It's like my highlight. Was, was that something you always thought about doing? Was that something you wanted to do? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's like I pissed my whole life up, in the, up until I got, you know, drafted. And I, I was, you know, I was good. Like, I thought I could pitch. You know, I felt, I honestly felt like I could have been a pitcher. And I know a lot of infielders and outfielders, you know, position players say that. But, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. Watch the tape. <laughs> Just watch the tape. I mean, I'm throwing balls, you know, 90, both sides, changing speed. So you got three up, three down at it. Three down. One strike out. Now, who did you strike out? Nah. Matters. Like, it's only a pitcher. But you know what? Hey, you got a man. But I got a couple swings and misses, you know, from some big leaguers. That's hard to do, you know. So um, that, that was, that's my highlight. I mean, I will, you know, I'll talk to anybody who wants to hear about it. Uh, <laughs> 
Great to catch up with Desi and, of course, the opportunity to meet him in person. Really nice guy and was really good to get go over some stories of some things that happened during his playing career. But if you remember Desi Relaford, you think of the 2001 Mets, the one thing that stands out, of course, is uh, the, the, the tragic circumstance of September 11th and everything that happened with it. And what the Mets did as an organization, as a, as a team, with the, the relief efforts and helping out and setting up Shea Stadium as kind of a sanctuary for uh, you know as many of those that were impacted and affected by, by the, the tragic and terrible things that happened uh, of September 11, 2001. And Desi Relaford was part of uh, what, what the Mets did with Bobby Valentine and setting up the relief efforts. And they were also part of the first sporting event that happened in New York City after the terrible uh, occurrences of 9-11. And he, he talks about that a little bit, but we didn't talk about, of course, and if, if you're a baseball fan or, of course, a, an American, you, you understand the impact and what the Mets play in the Atlanta Braves on uh, September 21st, 2001, really met for a, a lot of the people that were involved and just tried to get over what had just happened, the terroristic activity, and, of course, the, the many lives that were lost just 10 days earlier. The sporting event itself was a lot more than just a game of catch. It was a little more than just a, a pickup baseball game between two major league teams that was held on that day. Uh, if, if you followed the ceremony and everything that was involved before it, the way the team kind of got on the field and everything that was done to salute the men and women that go out there and serve this country and uh, just everything that was set up that day. It was a surreal atmosphere. It wasn't like you're about to watch or follow or be part of a baseball game. And just the way that two teams were able to go out on the field and compete, uh, the, the result of the game and whether a team won or lost didn't really matter. And, of course, you remember that game. That was a game that uh, Mike Piazza hit that big two-run home run in the eighth inning against Steve Carsey. And you, you quote 
Bobby Cox after the game and Chipper Jones after the game. Of course, Cox who will be a Hall of Fame manager this year. Chipper Jones at a couple of years will be a Hall of Fame third baseman. But neither of them really cared about the result of the game as much. And I think if throughout their entire careers, both as a manager in Bobby Cox's case and as a player in Chipper Jones' case, probably the only game that they would admit to have been willing to concede based on the circumstances of the game. And, you know, just to remember everything that had happened, not just, you know, what happened on September 11th, but the New York Mets game against the Atlanta Braves being the first sporting event, bringing baseball back and not just baseball, but the sporting world back and kind of taking people's minds off of what had just happened 10 days earlier and just to see uh, firefighters and police officers and people that no doubt just a couple days earlier either family members or people that they knew and colleagues and they were able to just sit there and enjoy something and take their mind off of what they just went through just for a brief couple minutes for a brief hour or two of their lives they could just kind of just not think about something that inevitably is going to be with them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, Desi Relaford was part of that game. And, you know, obviously the surrealness of what was going on in the country uh, is really something hard to explain. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, uh, a lot of different things I want to get into. It's a short program, just two hours. It's a lot of different things I want to touch on. And I'm going to jump right into something that I was thinking about. And, of course, it took over the headlines of Major League Baseball and was uh, announced. And I, I think a lot of people were shocked by it. I wasn't. But the Detroit Tigers deciding to sign uh, two-time defending AL MVP and, of course, power hitter, franchise player Miguel Cabrera to a 10-year contract worth in the excess of around $300 million. And uh, the problem that I have with people is the fact that most people don't understand the, the value of baseball players. And I'm not saying that they're worth more than people give them credit for, but I'm talking about the economics of the game of baseball what it is turned into with, with the contracts that players get nowadays. And the best players are worth millions and millions of dollars over the terms of a long time. And people don't want to hear that. People, you know, the guy that's a construction worker, the guy that works in the office, or the girl that, uh, you know, is a, is a receptionist somewhere, doesn't want to hear that Major League Baseball players get paid millions and millions of dollars. It bothers them. They can't seem to digest or take in for themselves why players that go out there and play a game to throw a ball and catch it and hit it and swing and you know run around the bases can get paid so much money while they are at their remedial job whatever it is making as little money as they do uh, that, that perspective I get I get the envy and the jealousy that exists with most people that follow professional sports and while they'll never understand why these guys that go out there and play a game get paid so much money but the bottom line is they do and people are not acknowledging the fact that this is just the economic value in the market of the way these players get paid. And Miguel Cabrera is right now, in my opinion, and you could and you could debate it if you want. I say he's the best player in the game right now. You could say Mike Trout is. I think it's a pretty good comparison, a good battle you've seen over the last couple of years with the AL MVP award, which I touched on in the beginning part of the program. But Miguel Cabrera is the best player in the game. And if he's not... You know, you want to say Mike Trout is, you want to say he's 1A. So he is. So why should he not get paid more than anybody else is getting paid in Major League Baseball? But people have a problem with it. I don't get it. I mean, to pay the guy $300 million, maybe it's too much. But, you know, there's a lot of other players that are getting paid way more than they should. 
I mean, nobody's complaining right now about Alex Rodriguez and what he's getting paid. I know he's not getting paid this year because he's suspended, but afterwards, his whatever, 200-something million dollar contract that he was given to the Yankees for a second time in his career, he, he, it kicks back in and he's getting paid the same amount of money. So why shouldn't Miguel Cabrera get paid more than Alex Rodriguez? I mean, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, does it seem that bad? I mean, if you, you saw what uh, Clayton Kershaw got paid, Mike Trout will be getting paid about $150 million, $24, $25 million a season for the next six years. And the problem that I have isn't with the players getting the money. How are you going to blame a player that's getting paid all this money because the market value uh, dictates it? Uh, you know, if, if anybody should change this, maybe it should be the owners. Maybe the wrath that these people that are so bitter and so envious and so upset and so pissed off because these players are making so much money, why don't they take their anger and put it towards what it has to be put towards? The owners in Major League Baseball that are still paying these players all this money. Because if, if teams would go down and maybe you can go to a, an approach and say, hey, this team doesn't do it or that team doesn't do it. If more teams didn't invest that type of money in the players, then all of a sudden it would run out after a certain point. Would you agree with that? I think you would. If you don't, tweet at me at John underscore PL and tell me why. But the fact that these teams are still paying these players all this money, once you get out all the high market teams, once you get the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Angels and whatever teams are the high spenders, the Detroit Tigers, you know, the teams like that that are always up there about 150 plus. And of course, you know, in the Yankees and the Dodgers case, it's well over 200 million. The Red Sox, you throw in there. Once you get all these high market teams out of the equation, once they filled their team up, they filled their roster up with as many star players as they could possibly afford to have a budget at whatever high payroll that they have. Once you get through those teams, there are still teams that go out there and spend that kind of money, whether it's the Giants, whether it's in the past, the Cubs and the Mets, whether it's the Seattle Mariners, the Miami Marlins a couple of years ago, even in some cases, the St. Louis Cardinals and the Toronto Blue Jays and teams like that that go out there and still spend that much money. So if those teams that really have the chance to be the controlling interest in whether all these players are going to get those max type of deals, maybe the middle road teams could, could look at it and their ownership could say, hey, maybe it's time that we stop paying that much money. But the reason that they don't is because they know that the other teams are still going to do it. And I'll make a supermarket reference here because we could talk about retail and the way it spices and deals and stuff like that. And when you're in competition with others, just similar to the way Major League Baseball teams are in competition with each other over the services of these high-impact players. Uh, you know, you talk about a free turkey sale where, you know, X supermarket will always do it and the other supermarkets keep up with the free turkey that they give out for Thanksgiving every year. And the way that's set up, you, know, you send, spend a certain amount of money and you get yourself a free turkey. Well, most supermarket chains want to get rid of that. Most supermarket chains say, listen, it, it, it's the, doesn't really make a lot of money. Uh, team People are going to come in the store and get their turkeys anyway. The amount of revenue that you get with the free turkey promotion is not really worth the money it costs to put it together. So one supermarket or two supermarkets decide they don't want to do it. And what do they do? The supermarket or two that still has it is going to draw all that extra business because of, of what it sells in itself. The, the free turkey you know, may not cost a lot, but it's going to draw people in to say, hey, in addition to getting my free turkey, I'm going to get a bunch of other things at this grocery store. So as long as somebody's doing it, everybody feels the need to have to do that to keep up. 
And that's what teams in Major League Baseball do with these high contracts. And, you know, you know about Moneyball and the way it's set up and certain teams are able to do it, maybe it controlled a little bit, not full out in it like the Oakland Athletics and the Tampa Bay Rays are. But, uh, you know, you get to a certain point and you realize, all right, well, talent, whether we raise it up ourselves or we trade for it, it's still going to cost money over time. You can't have a circle, a continuous flow of young players that are continuously coming up and older players that are making a certain amount of money end up being shipped off. And to be able to sustain a certain amount of success over that time, it's almost impossible. And eventually, the mid-market teams, the teams that haven't spent money in a couple of years, like, example, the Cubs and the Mets, eventually they're going to start spending money, whether they're spending it on their own players or whether they're spending it outside in free agency. But they're at, they're at the point where they say, all right, maybe we can get by by not spending a lot of money over a couple of years. And they get to that point where, like, all right, it's either spend or the other teams that are in the same spot as us are going to go out there and get those type of players. And once they get those type of players, they're going to pass us in a progression and they're going to have good teams. And we can think about the last four or five years that we've built with our younger teams and it's gone to naught because the teams that were behind us before have passed us now because they're willing to spend money on the players that we're not willing to spend money on. But if it was a level playing field and nobody was going out there and nobody was signing those big players after the big teams that I mentioned before would have filled out their rosters with the overspending, if you want to call it that, once they have help at every one of their positions and got all their all-stars and have that pennant-winning team that they expect it to be going forward, once those teams have their players, then where are the other big high-profile free agents going to go? Where, where is that next Robinson Cano going to go if the Yankees aren't in a mix, if the Dodgers aren't in a mix, if the Angels aren't in a mix, even teams like the Seattle Mariners or the Detroit Tigers or wherever it is, once they have their teams filled, completed, and ready to go, where is that next big free agent going to go unless a middle market team goes out there and spends? And if the middle market teams decided to get together and said, maybe not collusively, but if each organization decided and the middle market teams that they weren't going to go out there and get those high-profile free agents and spend the money that it costs to get them, then eventually the price of these free agents and the price it would cost for teams to be able to retain their own players would go down. But until that happens, you're going to still see the same thing. The best players in baseball deserve to be paid like the best players in baseball. So anybody that's going out there and criticizing and saying it's a bad deal for the Detroit Tigers to sign Miguel Cabrera for $300 million in 10 years, they may be right on the back end. They may be right in years 8, 9, and 10, but they're not right about him deserving to be paid more than anybody in Major League Baseball right now because he is that type of player. And if Alex Rodriguez could get that type of money, Miguel Cabrera deserves that type of money. If the Tigers could give that money to Prince Fielder and after trading him, freeing themselves up in a position to pay the best player in baseball the way he deserves to be paid, Miguel Cabrera should have a 10-year, $300 million contract. Once again, John Pielli here, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Big thanks to Tim McCarver for being part of the program this first hour. Of course, big thanks to Desi Rulliford as well. Second hour, I want to get into some things. We're going to talk a little bit about the Lugies, like I said. We're going to do my previews with the standings and the finishes, and I'll give you my World Series champion of 2014. And we're also going to talk with former Major League pitcher Milt Wilcox and former Major League pitcher Larry Jaster. So hopefully you guys enjoy this hour. Be back in five minutes right here. Uh, Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Welcome to London. 
Chicago, the heartbeat of America. That's today's Chevrolet.